We're looking at Second uh, Corinthians chapter one today. So if you'd like to turn there, I'll read for us the first um, well, verses three through ten. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through ten. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which, is, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We don't, don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despised even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. All right, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that before. In fact, this is exactly the same language, word for word, that we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It's how the early church identified God. And that identification found, became the formula for the early church's worship expressions. Paul goes on to call this, father, this God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And knowing that God is the Father of Jesus, we would expect compassion and comfort to characterize him. The old adage, like father, like son, is never truer than it is here. <clears throat> Paul refers to God, the Father of Jesus, as the Father of compassion. Other versions translate the Father of mercies. The word Paul chose is not the usual one translated as mercy in the New Testament. This word carries with it the idea of sympathy, even sensitivity to another person's pain. When the Greek philosophers described God, they used a good Greek word for that, apathetic. They thought of him as without feeling, untouched and, and untouchable by our sufferings. Paul says just the opposite. God, the ultimate reality, the ground of all being, feels for his creatures. He's the source of compassion, the father of compassion. That's not the God the Greeks knew. For that matter, it's not the God that Islam fears, but it is the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, like father, like son. Paul identifies him further as the one who comforts us in all our troubles. The father of compassion describes what God is. The one who comforts us describes what God does. He comforts us, or as the word is translated elsewhere, he encourages, urges, exhorts, pleads, begs, requests, appeals. So, don't think of the comfort mentioned here 
in terms of some schmaltzy thinking of you card. It's more muscular than that. Even our word comfort is derived from a Latin prefix meaning with and a root meaning strength. With strength has the idea of imparting strength to a person. If you want God to throw you a pity party, you're going to be disappointed. But if you want courage to face your circumstances, if you want to be strengthened to handle your responsibility, God will come alongside you and give you those things. In fact, the word here is derived from a root meaning and a a prefix meaning to call alongside. Think of a coach or trainer who wants you to succeed. He doesn't come alongside to baby you, but to embolden you. He doesn't want you to resign yourself to failure, but to take his instruction and succeed. Paul describes the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, or better yet, in every trouble. Now that's a full-time job, because we have lots of troubles. The word the NIV translates as troubles, and other versions render affliction, is the Greek word thlipsis, which appears in no less than 43 different verses in the New Testament. That should put us on alert. Christians are not exempt from suffering, as you well know. The idea behind that word has to do with pressure. In the old B movies, the good guys in horror films often found themselves in a room where the walls were closing in on them. That's thlipsis. These are between a rock and a hard place kind of troubles, or better, between the hammer and the anvil. These are pressure cooker troubles, not enough money to pay the rent, pressured at school to act in a way not fitting for a Christ follower, torn between work and family. It's pressure, pressure, pressure. When was the last time you were the B-movie hero and the walls were closing in on you? Maybe you're in the starring role right now. When you're in trouble, what do you do? Do you turn to everyone and everything but God to get you out of trouble? Or do you, do you become a MacGyver? You remember that TV show? The guy who's always using his wits and whatever he can find at hand to rescue himself. Is that what you do? Well, whether you rely on your wits or on your friends doesn't really matter if you're not relying on God. You turn to everyone and everything else, but God is ready to help. One of the great advances in the spiritual life happens when a person learns first to turn to God for the help he needs in the midst of trouble. You can learn to do that. You can learn to receive help and strength from God. Listen to what Paul wrote Timothy in the second letter to Timothy we have in our Bible. He's writing about his trial in Rome. It's a capital case, and if it went wrong, he could expect to be executed. He wrote, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. You can tell that was a blow to him. He felt abandoned, deserted. The people from whom he expected help and encouragement had not come through. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Paul had learned long before that how to turn to Christ when he was in trouble. And experience had taught him that when he did so, he would find Christ was already turned to him. 
But when the Lord came to Paul, it wasn't to commiserate with him. He didn't offer condolences. He offered strength. Remember, this is what encouragement entails. Now, if you learn to go to the Lord when you're in trouble, you'll find that he's been waiting for you. The psalmist tells us that he will be with us in trouble. That's a remarkable thought. That means that God has been in more trouble than any of us because he's been in trouble with each of us. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Our troubles don't scare him in the least. Learn to turn to him first, not last, when you're in trouble, when you're under pressure. Now, verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now, here's an amazing thing, though at first it might not sit well with us. God comforts me when I'm in trouble. That is, he encourages me, picks me up, and urges me to go on. But not so much for my sake, but for the sake of others. He helps me when I'm in trouble, but he does it for the sake of someone else. Well, I read that and I think, well, that's nice, but deep down, I want it to be about me. And this is about some other guy. Here's the truth about how the spiritual life operates that we must learn if we're ever to get on in the practice of following Jesus. Woven into the fabric of salvation, into, I suspect, the fabric of the universe, is the principle of self-giving. What you try to keep for yourself, you lose. What you give away, you keep. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Jesus said. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. By the way, that appears more than once in some Gospels, and it appears at least once in every Gospel. This is one of the principles of the, the life in Christ. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. We cast our bread upon the water, knowing that we'll find it again. We bury the seed in death so that it can give us life. We build an altar here so that the fire can fall over there. Someone over there builds an altar there so the fire can fall here. That's the way it works. This principle of self-giving originates in God himself. This is how he is. The father gives the son. The son gives himself back to the father. The father and the son give the spirit. Giving is the rule of the kingdom. We live to give. We live by giving. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice. From the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated, and by that abdication become more truly self, to be thereupon abdicated yet once again, and so forever. This is not a heavenly law we can escape by remaining earthly. Nor an earthly law we can escape by being saved. What's outside the system of self-giving is not earth, nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely hell. If you want to escape the law of self-giving, you have to go to hell to do it. 
we receive to give, not to grasp. But as we give with one hand, we receive with another. It's a game. It's a dance. A dance that moves to uncreated rhythms. Learn that dance. Learn to give expecting to receive and to receive expecting to give. I used to ski every winter. Ski quite regularly, actually, in Ohio, where I lived, but more often in New York, some years out in Colorado. Um, and so in the Winter Olympics, I always like to watch the alpine events because you know, I see what they do, and I'm just totally amazed. I was never a particularly good skier, but I was proficient. Yet I can remember a few times when it would all come together, when the motions from edge to edge were no longer cumbersome but easy. There were a few times when I was, as people said 20 years ago, in the zone. It just happened. And I've had it happen, but not very often, playing basketball. And then I, I know before the ball ever leaves my hand, it's going in. And uh, before I have to think what to do, it's happening. You can get in the zone as a Christ follower too. But it will involve the dance of receiving and giving. And often it'll seem like, I don't say it's true, but it will seem this way. It will seem like you are being asked to give before you've received. And that's hard for us. It's hard to trust, but we must. See, we'll be out of position to receive unless we're in position to give. When you stretch out your right hand to give, you feel God's grace and love thrust into your left hand. As you learn to trust, the dance really gets going. And then you move from edge to edge with a dexterity that's joy itself. But refuse to give, get scared, and hold on to what you've got, and the dance ends. And it ends like a game of ring around the rosy. They all fall down. God gives you comfort, encouragement, exhortation, appeal. That's a strength word. He gives you that so that you can give it to me. He gives it to me so that I can give it to someone else. And then when the dance dies down, God starts it all over again from his ever-giving, ever-joyful heart. I expect the great ones in heaven will not be those who have fasted the most meals or memorized the most verses, who've kept the most rules or wrote the best-selling books, though some of the great ones may have done any or all of these things. But all of the great ones will be people who have given themselves most quickly and most often to God and to others. All of this begins with Jesus. He's the Lord of the dance. His sufferings, verse 5, flow over into our lives, but so does his comfort. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Just as Christ's sufferings and his comfort are ours, our sufferings and our comfort are for someone else. It's the dance. God gives me a gift for John. He gives John a gift for Mary. And maybe Mary a gift for me. And the dance spreads. When we're going through temptation and trouble, it's natural for us to hunker down, to recede into ourselves, and to grasp at every straw to take care of ourselves. But that is exactly the wrong thing to do. It's in those times more than ever that we need to stand up and stretch out and extend ourselves to others. That's the Jesus way. That's the path of joy. 
When you find yourself entering into trouble, you lose your job, you receive a scary diagnosis, you go through serious marriage problems or experience unexpected hostility, you may wonder whether God is watching out for you. You may ask, God, have you got my back? And God says, why are you wondering if I have your back when I'm in front of you? I got here before you did. I've got your front. Look, if you go outside the will of God and get into sin, he's got your back. He'll rescue you if you just call on him. But stay in his will, and he's got your front. He goes before you. As Moses told the Israelites, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. And it's really even better than that. As Isaiah put it, the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, he goes before you and comes after you. Amazed at the greatness of God, the psalmist says, you hem me in behind and before. But if that's the case, why do we have all these troubles? You know, if you ask that question, it's because you've forgotten something. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Not yet, anyway. We're behind enemy lines. Our captain solemnly warned us that we would face hardships. In this world, you will have trouble. In fact, man is born to trouble. The sparks fly upwards. When we go through trouble, through hardship, through pressure, when the walls are closing in on us, the question we must learn to ask is not why, but what. What now? What do I do now? And the answer is totally counterintuitive. Don't get all wrapped up in yourself. That's how you get tied into knots. Stretch, extend, join the dance, pass the encouragement of Christ to someone else, but be ready to receive it yourself. Because Paul understood that that's how this works, he could say, verse 7, our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, we know you're going through a hard time. So also you will share in our comfort. Don't be surprised, he says. That's how it works. Yes, there's suffering, and sometimes it's unbelievably severe. But comfort, help, encouragement is on the way. Our temptation is to say, sure, you can say that, but that's only because you're not suffering the way I'm suffering. You know, and even if we know better, we feel as if we're all alone in our suffering. No one else ever has had to go through what we've had to go through. Our pain is worse than that of anyone else because it's our pain. Understanding that this is our penchant and our prejudice, Paul uses a personal illustration to help his friends see that they can have hope no matter what their circumstances. Look at verse 8. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. There are a couple things here I want you to notice. 
First, it's possible to survive even enormous pressure. Paul was being crushed. The pressure was too much for him to bear. We don't know when this hardship took place. Maybe it was while he was in prison. Uh, It might have been when the riots happened and some of his friends got hurt. Perhaps he's thinking of the time he faced wild beasts, he calls them, hostile men in an unreasoning fury in Ephesus. Whatever it was, wherever it was, he despaired of life. He felt that a death sentence had been passed on him. The weight of it was so heavy, he felt like he couldn't take one more step. This is the great apostle Paul. And he was unequal to the situation. He was sure he'd come to his end. But look at what he says next, the first night. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, our default position is to rely on, and the Greek might be translated, have confidence in ourselves. And depending on our level of competence, that might work for us pretty well. When the pressure's on, we go into self-reliance mode. We come up with plans, we manage people, we exert great energy. Without realizing it, we've subscribed to our society's very favorite doctrine. Believe in yourself. You gotta believe in yourself. That's not the lesson we need to learn. We need to learn how to believe in God in the midst of life. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. The sooner you learn to rely on God, the better. Self is a poor object of faith, and it's even worse at securing hope. We need to learn confidence in the God who raises the dead. Why? Because even if your brilliant plans and your superhuman strength and your cleverness in managing people somehow enables you to get through most of the trials that life sends you, there's a trial coming that even you will not be able to outthink, overpower, or outmaneuver. Death. And then you will have to rely on God. But when that time comes, will you be able to? Will you be able to when you've never done it? You will be able if you learn how to rely on God now in the painful situation you presently find yourself. I know you hate that situation. Who wouldn't? I know you'd do anything to change it. Well, change it if you can, but whatever you do, don't waste it. Start now to rely on God. Paul relied on God in his unbearable situation, and notice it inspired his hope. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. It's as if He says this, he's delivered us from a deadly peril. He will deliver us. I know that now. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. A more literal translation might run, who rescued us out of so great a death and will rescue us. And then comes a little Greek word that indicates movement towards a result. Leading us to hope that we will yet be rescued. This is the cycle of hope that we've seen before. We hope in the one who's stronger than death. 
that hope enables us to rely on him in our present troubles. As soon as we do that, our hope in him grows stronger, which helps us rely on him even more. Blessed the man, woman, or child who gets caught up in this cycle of hope. When they come at last to the grave, they will be full of hope in the God who raises the dead. But what do we do now? How can we avoid being crushed by the pressure of the present? Pressures that might be too much for us to bear. Some of you will remember this. Some of you may have read about it. One of the first, not the first, but one of the first U.S. nuclear-powered submarines was the Thresher, named after the Thresher Shark. It was made with extremely heavy steel bulkheads and armor so that it could withstand the pressure of the deep ocean. Uh, it was first sent out somewhere around 1960, but in 1963, the Thresher set out on a test cruise in the Atlantic with another ship, but its nuclear engine failed, and it sank to the ocean's floor somewhere off Cape Cod. On the ocean floor, as it sank, the pressure became so enormous that the steel bulkheads buckled and the thresher was crushed. 129 people lost their lives, 129 Americans. The Navy searched for the thresher with a research craft that was made to withstand much more pressure than a submarine could withstand. It was small, shaped like a steel ball, and it's lowered into the ocean on a cable. They finally found the thresher at a depth of 8,400 feet and it was crushed like an eggshell. That didn't surprise them because the pressure at that depth is tremendous, 3,600 pounds per square inch. What did surprise them was this. They saw fish swimming around at that depth. Fish weren't armor-plated. They didn't have inches of steel to protect them. They appeared to have normal skin, fraction of an inch thick, how could a fish survive under 36 pounds of pressure per square inch? Why aren't they crushed by the weight of the water? Because they have a secret. Their secret is that the pressure inside them is equal to the pressure outside them. Now that takes us back to a passage we studied a couple months ago in depth and to which I've referred more than once in this series. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, he says. This is Paul writing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what he says in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he tells us we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. It's the presence of God's Spirit in us that keeps us from being crushed by the pressures outside us. Had God not placed his loving spirit within us, hope would disappoint us. It would be a cheat. But having God's spirit equalizes the pressure. We don't have to be steel-plated to go through life without being crushed. It's not what's outside, but what's inside, the spirit of God. If you have Jesus, you have the spirit of God. Or perhaps it'd be truer to say, if Jesus has you, you have the Spirit of God. Since Paul says, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. If Christ has you, you have him, 
and the great dance, the beautiful exchange, begins. And if he has you, you have hope. If he does not have you, you do not have hope. But you can. You can give yourself, your life to him right here, right now, in an act of faith. Now, I don't know if you're ready for that because maybe you haven't heard much about this God and his son Jesus, but maybe you have, and the Lord's been preparing you all along, and it's time now. Today's the day. Don't miss it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've already believed in him, let me teach you three steps of the dance. You need to master these. The first step is always a step toward God. Always. Whether you're in trouble or not, move toward God. Pray, offer him your worship, yourself, your situation. Move toward God. That's the first step. But even as you're moving toward God, this is a hard step for us to learn. Be ready to give yourself to the person God is bringing toward you in the movement of the dance. Give comfort, encouragement, help, forgiveness, whatever that person needs that you have. That's the second step. And when we're in trouble, that's hard. But as you give to him, open yourself to receive what's about to be given to you. That's the third step. Move towards God. Give to the person moving towards you in the movement of this dance. Be ready to receive. That's the third step. Don't wait around for the person you've just given to give back to you. That's a mistake. That will spoil the dance and leave you confused and resentful. Your gift is probably coming from a different direction. And once you begin to get the feel of the dance, once you learn to trust that even as you give what you need, it's coming the other way, you'll discover why this is a dance of hope. But you can't sit against the wall and watch and still have hope. That's not the way it works. You can't study the steps endlessly in a book. You have to get out on the floor. You have to join the dance. All right, let's pray. Eternal God, before the heavens and the earth were created, the dance went on. The eternal Father begetting the eternal Son. The eternal Son giving himself back to the eternal Father. and from them proceeding the eternal spirit. Catch us up into the dance. Lord, its movements are strange to us. Movements that lead to a cross, but then to a resurrection. I pray that you'll keep us in our trouble 
from receding into ourselves and becoming selfish and self-protective. No, help us to follow the way of Jesus. Help us to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit and give ourselves away. Teach us the dance for Jesus' sake. Amen.